Good evening, this is Quintus Curtius, and welcome back to the podcast. I was not originally planning to do a podcast tonight, but due to the uh, terrible tragedy in Paris, with the burning of the Notre Dame de Paris, the cathedral there, I thought that a lot of us out there might be feeling just a little down, a little depressed, a little sad, and I thought that I might be able to do something to try to evoke some of the original spirit that enabled this great monument of culture to be created. And I thought, what better way to do that than to read some selections from the historian Jean de Joinville, who wrote a short life of Louis the Ninth. He wrote a very short sketch of the life of uh, France's most pious king, most pious king who was the only French monarch who actually was also canonized. And uh, Saint Louis, or Saint Louis, was also named to history as Louis the Ninth, Louis the Ninth. And he lived from 1214 to 1270. So he was alive at the time that the cathedral was being constructed. I'm not sure of the exact dates of the construction, but I know that it was a generational affair. It started in the 12th century and I think took about 100 years almost or more. But I thought that we could we could try to recollect and recall the spirit of dedication, of piety, of intense devotion that really animated this structure, that elevated it, elevated it beyond just being a mere artistic collection of wood and stone and stucco and marble. It really made it an expression of the most profound and intense longings of the French spirit, of the French soul during that era, during the age of faith. And we all have an obligation to go on. We all have an obligation to grieve, which we will grieve. But we also have an obligation to steel ourselves and to move forward with the task of reconstruction and rebuilding, which will take place, which must take place. And every man must do his part. Every woman must do her part. Everyone must do their part to ensure that the tragedies of the present do not and never will erase the glories of the past. And I think if you can hear some of the statements made by Jean V in his life of St. Saint, uh, Louis, you'll be able to Recall in your own minds this real spirit of piety and dedication that I hope will serve as an inspiration and will help us to get through the process of grieving onto something better, onto something better. So I'm going to start out now. I'm going to read part one of Joan V's uh, Life of St. Louis, and it's... The, chapter, the first chapter is entitled, The Servant of God. And I'm going to go ahead and read that. He says, In the name of God Almighty, I, Jean, Lord of Joinville, 
Seneschal of Champagne, dedicate the life of our good king, St. Louis, in which I shall record what I saw and heard both in the course of the six years in which I was on pilgrimage in his company overseas, and after he returned to France. But before I speak to you of his great deeds and his outstanding valor, I will tell you what I myself observed of his good teachings and his saintly conversation, so that it may be set down in due course for the edification of those to whom his book is read. This saintly man loved our Lord with all his heart, and in all his actions followed his example. This is apparent from the fact that as our Lord died for the love he bore his people, even so King Louis put his own life in danger, and that several times, for the very same reason. It was danger, too, that he might well have avoided, as I shall show you later. The great love King Louis bore his people is shown by what he said, by what he said as he lay dangerously ill at Fontainebleau, to his eldest son, my Lord Louis. My dear son, he said, I earnestly beg you to make yourself loved by all your people, for I would rather have a Scot come from Scotland to govern govern the people of this kingdom well and justly, than that you should govern them ill in the sight of all the world. This upright king, moreover, loved truth so well that, as I shall show you later, he would never consent to lie to the Saracens with regard to any covenant he made with them. He was so temperate in his appetites that I never heard him, on any day of my life, order a special dish for himself, as many men of wealth and standing do. On the contrary, he would always eat with good grace whatever his cooks had prepared and set before him. He was equally, equally temperate in his speech. I never, on any single occasion, heard him speak evil of any man, nor did I ever hear him utter the name of the devil, a name in very common use throughout the kingdom, which practice, so I believe, is not pleasing to God. He used to add water to his wine, but did so reasonably according as the strength of the wine allowed it. While we were in Cyprus, he asked me why I did not mix my wine with water. I replied that this was on the advice of my doctors, who had told me that I could, that I had a strong head and a cold stomach, so that I could not get drunk. He answered that they had deceived me, for if I did not learn to mix my wine with water while I was still young, and wished to do so in my old age, gout and stomach troubles would take hold of me, and I should never again be in good health. Moreover, if I went on drinking undiluted wine when I was old, I should get drunk every night, and it was too revolting a thing for any brave man to be in such a state. The king once asked me if I wished to be honored in this world, and to enter paradise when I died. I told him I did. If so, said he, you should avoid deliberately saying or doing anything which, if it became generally known, you would be ashamed to acknowledge by saying, I did this, or I did that. He also told me not to contradict or call into question anything said in my presence, unless indeed silence would imply approval of something wrong, or damaging to myself, because harsh words often lead to quarreling, which has ended in the deaths of countless numbers of men. He often said that people ought to clothe and arm themselves in such a way that men of riper age would never say that they had spent too much on dress, or young men say that they had spent too little. I repeated this remark to our present king when speaking of the elaborately embroidered tabards that are in vogue today. 
I told him that, during the whole of our voyage overseas, I had never seen such embroidered tabards, either on the king or on anyone else. He said to me that he had several such garments, with his own arms embroidered on them, and that they had cost him eight hundred livres parisis. I told him that he would have put his money to better use if he had given it to God, and had his clothes made of good plain taffeta bearing his arms, as his father had done. King Louis once said to me, once sent for me and said, You have such a shrewd and subtle mind that I hardly dare speak to you of things concerning God. But I have summoned these two monks to come here because I want to ask you a question. Then he said, Tell me, Seneschal, what is your idea of God? Your Majesty, I replied, He is something so good that there is nothing, that there cannot be anything better. Indeed, said he, you have given me a very good answer, for it's precisely the same as the definition given in this book that I have here in my hand. Now I ask you, he continued, which would you prefer, to be a leper or to have committed some mortal sin? And I, who had never lied to him, replied that I would rather have committed thirty mortal sins than to become a leper. The next day, when the monks were no longer there, he called me to him, and making me sit at his feet, said to me, Why did you say that to me yesterday? I told him that I would say it. I told him that I would still say it. You spoke without thinking, and like a fool, he said. You ought to know that there is no leprosy so foul as being in a state of mortal sin. For the soul in that condition is like the devil. Therefore, no leprosy can be so vile. Besides, when a man dies, his body is healed of its leprosy. But if he dies after committing a mortal sin, he can never be sure that during his lifetime he has repented of it sufficiently for God to forgive him. In consequence, he must be greatly afraid lest that leprosy of sin should last as long as God dwells in paradise. So I beg you, he added, as earnestly as I can, for the love of God and for love of me, to train your heart to prefer any evil that can happen to the body, whether it be leprosy or any other disease, rather than let mortal sin take possession of your soul. At another time, King Louis asked me if I washed the feet of the poor on Monday, Thursday. Your Majesty, I exclaimed, what a terrible idea. I will never wash the feet of such lowly fellows. Really, said he, that is a very wrong thing to say, for you should never scorn to do what our Lord himself did as an example for us. So I I beg you, first for the love of God, and then for the love of me, to accustom yourself to washing the feet of the poor. I will tell you here, of one of the lessons King Louis taught me on our voyage back from the land overseas. It so happened that our ship was driven on to the rocks off the island of Cyprus by a wind known as the Garbino, which is not one of the four four great winds. As As the shock our ship received, the sailors were so frantic with despair that they rent their clothes and tore their beards. The king sprang out of bed barefoot, for it was night, and with nothing on but his tunic, went and lay with arms outstretched to form a cross before the body of our Lord on the altar, 
as one who expected nothing but death. The day after this alarming event, the king called me aside to talk with with him alone, and he said to me, Seneschal, God has just shown us a glimpse of his great power. For one of these little winds, so little indeed that it scarcely deserves a name, came near to drowning the king of France, his children, his wife, and his men. Now, St. Anselm says that such things are warnings from our Lord, as if God meant to say to us, See how easily I could have brought about your death if that had been my will. Lord God, says the saint, why dost thou thus threaten us? For when, for when thou dost, it is not for thy own profit nor for thy advantage, seeing that if thou hadst caused us all to be lost, thou wouldst be none the poorer, nor any the richer, either if thou hadst caused us to be saved. Therefore the warning thou sendeth us is not for thy own benefit, but for others, if so be we know how to profit by it. Let us therefore, said the king, take this warning God has sent us in such a way that if we feel there is anything in our hearts or our bodies that is displeasing to him, we shall get rid of it without delay. If, on the other hand, we can think of anything that will please him, we ought to see about doing it with equal speed. If we act thus, our Lord will give us blessings in this world and in the next greater bliss than we can tell. But if we do not act as we ought, he will deal with us as a good Lord deals with his unfaithful servant. For if the latter will not amend his ways after he has been given warning, then the Lord, then his Lord punishes him with death or with penalties even harder to bear. So I, Jean de Joinville, say, Let the king who now reigns over us beware, for he has escaped from perils as great as those to which we were then exposed, or even greater. Therefore, let him turn from doing wrong, and in such a way that God will not smite him cruelly, either in himself or in his possessions. In the conversations he had with me, this saintly king did everything in his power to give me a firm belief in the principles of Christianity as given us by God. He used to say that we ought to have such an unshakable belief in all the articles of faith that neither fear of death nor of any harm that might happen to our bodies should make us willing to go against them in word or deed. The enemy, he would add, works so subtly that when people are at the point of death, he tries all he can to make them die with some doubt in their minds on certain points of our religion. For this cunning adversary is well aware that he cannot take away the merit of any good works a man has done, and he also knows that a man's soul is lost to him if he dies in the true faith. Therefore, the king would say, it is our duty to def so to defend and guard ourselves against this snare as to say to the enemy when he sends us such a temptation, Go away. You shall not lure me from my steadfast belief in the articles of my faith, even if you had all my limbs cut off. I would still live and die a true believer. Whoever acts thus overcomes the devil with the very same weapons with which this enemy of mankind had proposed to destroy him. King Lewis would also say that the Christian religion as defined in the creed was something in which we ought to be, believe implicitly, even though our belief in it might be founded on hearsay. On this point he asked me, what was my father's name? I told him it was Simon. 
So he asked me how I knew it, and I replied that I thought I was certain of it, and believed it without question because I had my mother's word for it. Then he said, You ought to have a sure belief in all the articles of our faith on the word of the apostles, which you hear sung of a Sunday in the Creed. And so I think that will conclude my my short reading from the first chapter of uh, Jean de Joinville's Life of Saint Louis, Life of Saint Louis. And I think it gives us an idea, a good flavor of the the spirit of the age, the spirit of the times, the ethic, the thinking that imbued a devout ruler of the age of faith. And it was this spirit, this this certainty, this this devotional commitment to a cause that I think is something we should admire. It doesn't matter whether you uh, you know are a or a religious person or are not a religious person. That's not the point. That's not the point of what we're doing here today. What we're doing is to try to recall the spirit that created the great cathedrals of Europe in both France, Germany, England, and in other countries. This was the spirit. This was the ethic of the age. And I think if we can understand this, if we can appreciate this, it will help us to more fully appreciate just what was lost today, just really what was lost, and how important it is for a a culture, a nation, to reclaim its past and to be proud of its past and to honor it and to protect it, to conserve it, and to make sure that these acts of negligence and of apathy and of neglect never, ever occur again. And so that's all I wanted to say. And about Notre-Dame de Paris, may she rise again. And I say, Vive la France! Vive la France! Vive la France!